Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider, where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor bread pork, and a selection of paleo and low-carb products delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Okay, and we're recording, and I'm lucky enough to have with me today Professor Thomas Seyfried, uh, who's a cancer researcher and professor of biology at Boston College, and the author of the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Um, I first heard about you through a recommendation for your book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. And I read that and then the book, uh, Tripping Over the Truth by Travis Christopherson, which is maybe a, um, a less in-depth scientific uh, look at similar um, subjects. And in these books, it's kind of spelled out how the incidence and um, successful treatment of cancer is not moving in a very positive direction. And that part of the reason is that the research focus has been on cancer as a certain type of disease, namely caused by a mutation in genes, so that it's uh, uh, about the um, the transcription of the information for uh, building cells rather than the metabolism of the cells themselves, where they get their energy from. And... Um, Maybe you can talk about the state of cancer research, a bit about the history and what we know now about cancers. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, yeah, you kind of summarized the, the situation quite, uh, quite accurately. Um, well, we're, we, we have, I, I don't, it, it probably could be called some sort of an epidemic, uh, not in the, in the sense of a viral uh, infection like Zika or something like this. But the number of people dying each day throughout the world from cancer is reaching what I would consider epidemic proportions. Um, in the United States alone, we have over 1,600 people a day die from cancer. Um, I, I don't know what it is in the UK, but it's, it's also very, very significant. And in China, it's over 8,000 uh, people a day. It's surpassed heart disease now as the number one cause of death. Uh, in, among of diseases in China, so so it, it's it's a it's a significant worldwide problem that is becoming worse and worse each year, not better and better. Um, you know, we we've been fumbling around with the the gene theory of cancer. Uh, well, actually, since about 1914, when uh, Theodore Bovary uh, first speculated that he saw. Um, he had no abnormal chromosomes in um, sea urchins, which then subsequently died. But he saw abnormal chromosomes um, in cancer cells and thought maybe that was responsible for their abnormal growth. He, he humbly uh, um, acknowledged that he knew nothing uh, about cancer, uh, not a shred of information. And he said his hypothesis that uh, cancer may be due to chromosomal abnormalities was pure um, speculation. Uh, with no uh, no solid evidence to support anything he was going to say. And he, he actually came out and said that. How is it possible that the whole field embraced this completely speculative idea to make it a dogmatic view of what the nature of the disease is? But I think in the, in the 50s and 60s, when molecular biology was in its infancy, um, people started to see not only chromosomal abnormalities, but abnormalities in DNA structure in some of these tumor cells, and they kind of linked it all back to Bovary uh, in one way or another. And there were some very prominent individuals, you know, who were look at linking this was Jim Watson and uh, 
uh, Jacob, um, Jacques Minot, and these guys were Nobel laureates who seemed to think that uh, cancer was maybe some sort of chromosomal genetic thing. And, and Jim course, Watson is, um, sorry yeah. to interrupt, Jim Watson is the of the Watson and Crick fame, um, who yeah. described the, and won the Nobel Prize, I think, for, the, yeah. for describing the helical shape of DNA, that famous helix shape the DNA has. Right, right. Well, it was, it was uh, Jim Watson and Francis Crick from England, from the UK, um, that made this big splash looking at the structure of DNA. And of course, many other investigators had since found abnormalities in chromosomes. And, and as the molecular biology of, of, of the, as the field of molecular biology started to mature more, you began to see sequencing DNA, all kinds of mutations and things like this. And then, um, you know, uh, Varmus and Bishop uh, on Nobel Prizes with, um, you know, proto-oncogenes uh, and this kind of Varmus and these guys, oncogenes and, and you know, a lot of molecular problems in cancer, uh, which has now matured uh, with uh, the work of Vogelstein and Weinberg and many others that um, cancer is primarily a somatic mutation kind of disease where, you know, somatic mutations are the first uh, steps in the process. Uh, this is the current dogma. And therefore, these mutations affect the, the stability of the cell to proliferate. So there's gene mutations in, 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 in cell replication errors. So the cells begin to repl replicate out of control. And essentially, cancer is um, uh, cell division out of control, basically. The cells divide in an uncontrolled manner as opposed to normal cells, which can divide in a controlled manner. And the, uh, and the dysregulation is, was, is ha and has been thought to be uh, the result of these various kinds of somatic mutations. And then on top of this, you find genetic risk factors that run in families that make it uh, even appear more solid for some sort of a genetic disease, like the BRCA1 you see in, in breast cancer, and then you have some other kinds of uh, genetic risk factors, the Lee-Frau-Many syndrome, and, uh, which is P53 linked to a particular mutation. Um, so all of this together built a giant uh, juggernaut of, uh, of scientific investigation uh, that has since spawned um, you know, the chemotherapies and the immunotherapies and all these kinds of therapies that you hear about, um, the standards of care are based on trying to stop dysregulated cell growth, whether it's through radiation or various kinds of chemicals, or now um, certain immunotherapies um, that are trying to target um, uh, the abnormal mutations uh, using the immune system to recognize cells with um, you know, defects. All of, all of this is linked to the somatic mutation theory of cancer that was initiated by Theodore Bovary in 1914 and has since morphed into this giant juggernaut that we have today, which is part of the academic and pharmaceutical industries that permeate all aspects of standards of care and cancer management and cancer research throughout the world. So, um, and that's why you hear about all these different things on television and, you know, written up on immunotherapies, this and, and new, new treatments, that. The, the, the bottom line is there's 1,600 people a day dying and there seems to be no, uh, no therapy that has had, had any significant impact in reducing those numbers. So, uh, you know, most of the reduction in cancer incidence has come from uh, avoiding risk factors like smoking and things like this. But there's still many childhood, uh, childhood brain cancer has now become the number one uh, cancer killer of children. Um, brain cancer in the UK is out of control. We don't really understand. Yeah, so... Um, so at the same time, uh, when all of this history was happening, um, uh, Otto Warburg in Germany uh, had clearly shown that all cancer cells uh, have a, a tendency to uh, ferment lactic acid, and they continue to ferment even in the presence of oxygen, which is very strange, because you know if you sprint and run fast, uh, our bodies will build up lactic acid because we can't get enough oxygen into the muscles. So we build up lactic acid. But as soon as the oxygen comes in, you know, we, we can, the liver can convert the lactic acid to glucose and then we can respire and generate energy through oxidative phosphorylation. 
cancer cells, even in the presence of 100% oxygen, continue to ferment. They, they can't recognize this, this value of oxygen to make energy. So um, Warburg had said cancer occurs in two fundamental ways. Number one, there is a serious damage to the ability of a cell to generate energy using oxidative phosphorylation or oxygen, which is then uh, accompanied by a gradual slow conversion away from uh, that to a fermentation metabolism. So there's a two-step. One, you have to damage or interfere with the oxidative phosphorylation. But if that's done too fast and too acutely, the cell will, will, will die, and you don't get cancer cells from dead cells. So the cancer cell, any cell that becomes a cancer cell is a fermenter. And that's uh, uh, regardless of their somatic mutations or whatever, they, they all have this ability to continue to generate energy without oxygen. And that's an ancient, that's an ancient um, uh, kind of a biochemical process because all of, the, all of the organisms that existed on our planet before oxygen came into the atmosphere some 2.5 billion years ago, all the organisms at that time were all fermenters. There was no oxygen in the atmosphere. So multicellular organisms all arose originally from being having a fermentation metabolism. Now, all of our bodies, most of the, most of the cells in our body retain that heirloom, that ancient process. It's called glycolysis. And, and it takes glucose and makes, uh, through a 10-step process, makes pyruvate, which is then fully oxidized in the mitochondria. But if the mitochondria don't have oxygen or damaged, that pyruvate is, is reduced to lactic acid, lactic, lactate. So the cancer cells continue to make large amounts of lactate, despite the fact. So Warburg, Warburg said that's because their respiration is defective. So, but many people didn't believe that. They didn't, and they said, well, we have these cancer cells that take in a lot of oxygen, but they choose to continue to ferment as if they had a conscious choice. Well, that's a teleological, that doesn't make any sense in modern science. So they, they ferment because their respiration is impaired, just as Warburg said. However, they said, well, if that's the case, how come, all how come there are some cancer cells that don't use uh, sugar and glycolysis? They can, they can seem to live without that, and they take in oxygen. Therefore, Warburg must be wrong. And this was the giant controversy that wasn't settled by the biochemists, so the gene guys, the somatic mutation guys, moved into the field with a more compelling explanation that somatic mutations, forget about this, and, and the abnormal metabolism, therefore, must be due to the somatic mutations. So what we, my, myself, uh, my, 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 my good colleague, um, Christo Shinopoulos from Semmelweis University, the world's leader on mitochondrial, uh, one of the world's leaders on mitochondrial metabolism, I engaged him in this process. and. Um, we, now, we know there is, a, there is another form of fermentation inside the mitochondria. Uh, it's always known in the biochemical textbooks, but no one really knew that that process of called mitochondrial substrate level phosphorylation, which is a kind of fermentation metabolism, different from the glycolytic metabolism, but it's fermentation nevertheless, was a, a major player in energy and cancer. So we, we defined that, and that as the missing link in Otto Warburg's central theory. So he thought that uh, only lactic acid was the product of the cancer and that and lactic acid fermentation was the driver of all cancers. Now, most cancers do have lactic acid fermentation, but not all. So we found that there's another form of fermentation called mitochondrial substrate level phosphorylation, which is the missing link in Otto Warburg's central theory. So this can account now for why some cancer cells look like they don't use sugar, and why some cancer cells appear to respire because you're getting ATP energy out of the mitochondria, the mitochondria taking in oxygen, making it look like they're respiring, but in fact they're not. They're fermenting, and that fuel is glutamine, which is an amino acid. So we have now defined cancer and filled in the blank that Otto Warburg was missing. Moreover, we showed that these somatic mutations are all downstream effects of this damage to the initial respiration. So when you damage respiration, you form these reactive species called reactive oxygen species. And these reactive oxygen species derived from damaged mitochondria are carcinogenic and mutagenic. So the broken chromosomes, the mutations, and all these things 
are the result of a downstream epiphenomenon from the, from the respiration. So how do we know that? Because when we take the nucleus of the tumor cell, which supposedly has the broken chromosomes and DNA mutations, and we put it into a new cytoplasm with normal mitochondria, the cells proliferate in a regulated way and sometimes can form tissues and sometimes a whole organism from the nucleus of a tumor cell. So clearly the mutations are not, are not having any, any discernible effect on dysregulated cell growth. And if you do the reverse, and if you take the nucleus from a normal cell and put it into the cytoplasm of a tumor cell, those cells will either die or become cancer cells. So, so the, the, it, it, it's a very powerful uh, series of experiments that were done by some of the, the world's greatest developmental biologists and, it, and it, it completely destroys the somatic mutation theory of cancer. So, so the, the question is, most people don't know about that. And moreover, a lot of people don't want to know about that because we have built an incredibly powerful structure of pharmacy and academic research into thinking cancer is a genetic disease, investing hundreds of millions of dollars into a failed paradigm. And this is what can explain, in, in large part, why we have so little progress in the field of cancer, because it's misunderstood as a somatic mutation disease, when in fact it's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. And when you take away the fermentable fuels like we just published in communications biology, you can kill these cells very, very quickly. And all cancers have the same problem. This is another thing. All cancers are fermenting glucose and glutamine because their respiration is different. So you say, what are the fuels? And it's glucose and glutamine. Every cancer is different genetically, but exactly the same or very, very similar metabolically. So the logic to manage cancer and reduce the death rate is to challenge the defective metabolism in these cells, not chasing genes. It's had no effect. It's had, very, it's had very, almost minimal effect on survival. And the cost of those new therapies are outrageous. This is not going to help mankind in any significant way. Yeah, that's a really uh, sobering summary of uh, where we are. And maybe you could um, put into numbers the, the kind of uh, extension to life that the last 40 or 50 years of the war on cancer has actually produced. Well, you know, um, people are surviving longer. That's, that is true. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that the current standards of care have not helped people. They, they have. Um, but it comes at a very significant price, both financially and physically. So a lot of cancer pe people who have actually said, I'm a cancer survivor, you know, they've paid a price for that survival. You know, they, they often, often have many other phys physical ailments that is, are now part of their physiology. They have um, neuropsychiatric problems like depression, uh, gastrointestinal issues, hormonal imbalance issues. There's a lot of people that have new forms of disease as the result of having survived these toxic approaches that we use, radiation and chemo and this kind of thing. So we have a new form of medicine in, 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 here in Boston at one of the major hospitals called cancer survivors medicine. So these are to treat cancer, all the ailments that people have after being treated with toxic things. And then, and then you also have this other new, new emerging thing called financial toxicity, where marriages are falling apart, people are committing suicide because they can't afford the, the, the bills. So, so how much longer did you get? So, uh, okay, I'm gonna take toxic, toxic chemicals and I'm going to live, you know, eight months, hy hypothetically for a advanced uh, uh, lung cancer or one of the other advanced cancers. Or I'm going to take a, a um, immu new immunotherapy, one of the, you know, um, you know one of the new um, uh, PD-1 uh, inhibitors or one of these, Aptivo, Keytruda, one of these kinds of, um, you know, inhibitors. You know, they pay, they pay, you know, massive amounts, oh, $100,000, $200,000, and you can live an extra four months, maybe if you're lucky, four months, generally two months. There's a new thing that we found, too, with immunotherapies is that you have um, hyperprogressive disease. So if, you know, it's one thing to, to take a treatment that doesn't really do anything. It's, it's another thing to take a treatment that accelerates your, your demise uh, faster than if you did nothing. 
and, and we're finding that that more and more uh, significant adverse effects. Now, all of these things, all the majority of these therapies are based on the idea that cancer is a genetic disease in one way or another. So, if we treat cancer as a metabolic disease and use drugs and and uh, approaches, dietary and other drugs and interactions, uh, to target their fermentable fuels, we can not only kill the cancer cells, but we can also enhance the health and vitality of the normal cells of the body at the same time. And we've seen this happening in, in some of the people that we're working with. So that seems to be the singular most logical uh, approach for the worldwide management of cancer. Treat it as a mitochondrial metabolic disease with far less toxic therapies, giving the body a chance to heal while at the same time you're gradually and slowly eliminating the tumor cells. That doesn't mean we use you know, no, no radiation or no chemo or none of this kind of stuff, but those kinds of things could work so much more powerfully at so much lower concentrations than they are presently uh, in the present situation. And we believe that we can actually develop all new kinds of cocktails um, using, using ketogenic metabolic therapy together with drugs that target glutamine. So you're going to target both glucose and glutamine simultaneously. And that's what our new paper just came out and showed how powerful that can in fact be. And it kills all kinds of cancer cells. It's not restrictive to any one kind. So I think the future is very, very bright for cancer uh, once the field comes to recognize it as a very different kind of disease than what was now than what it was thought to be but how long will it take for the field to come to accept this so it, it's up to the pay, it's up to the common guy on the street to recognize that cancer is a metabolic disease and if his and if his oncologist is not using metabolic therapy he might he might want to consider going somewhere else because um, most of these uh, oncologists are untrained in this area. And I think if they could rapidly train themselves, they might might be able to make a real significant impact on the outcome of their patients. Yeah, it, it often takes um, somewhat maverick doctors to recognize that there's a trend away from the mainstream that isn't working very well. I mean, that's happening with using uh, low-carb diets in the treatment of type 2 diabetes, where yeah. the Berta study and... Um, yes. David Unwin over here has, you know, you know, they, the, their patients who go on uh, a ketogenic diet, half of them no longer need diabetes drugs. It's, uh, it's remarkable, but it does take um, strength to, to go against the, the established position. And I mean, I've heard you and read your, you know, criticism of you and the, the suggestion that using metabolic uh, therapies with uh, some dietary approach might be dangerous because it may put people off seeking conventional treatment. But of course, that's not what you're saying. You just said um, what you really mean. And um, you're not alone either. You know, there's high profile researchers like Siddhartha Mukherjee, who's a doctor, biologist, author of The Emperor of All Maladies, which is about cancer, which won him the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, he's looking closely at cancer metabolism and ketogenic diets. What, why do you yeah. think people are still so sensitive that they attack you in spite of making real inroads with your research and being in good company with it? Well, I don't know if they attack me um, because most of the stuff that I write is ignored. Um, you know, there's one thing, if, if you're wrong, then you are deserving of attack. Um, if you are right, it's hard to attack. It's not me. It's the, it's, it's, it's a hundred years of science that I, that I have uh, just taken the same facts and just reconfigured the facts into an alternative explanation. So you have to then attack all of these biochemists, uh, leaders in the field of biochemistry, leaders in the field of developmental biology, you have to attack all those folks mm -hmm. if, you, if you think you know, this is not. So if you know you're on solid scientific ground, and this is what we're on, science, we're, our, our platform of science is so much stronger than the platform that supports the somatic mutation theory. So if you, but I have to admit it's a bitter pill if, and, it's, and, it, and I wrote many, and I say many times, it's dogma. It's a dogmatic, it's like a religion. If you have been brought up in the scientific field to view a particular problem under a particular set of, of ideas, just, it's just like a religion. How easy it is it going to be to take 
someone of Islamic faith and say Judaism is the correct religion or Christianity. It's, it's almost impossible. So you're dealing with this kind. You say, well, science shouldn't be like that. But it is. All right. Unfortunately, it is. There's a lot of big money, big positions, all of this dependent. The National Institutes of Health, which is supposed to be the guide for doing this research, says cancer is a genetic disease, despite the massive evidence to say that it can't be. So what are they doing? Do they read the literature? Do they understand the arguments? Do they question the science? If they do, they should say something. They don't say anything. Nor does the National Health Service in, in the UK nor does the National Health Service in Germany or, or any of these countries. They're continuing to do what they've been trained to do and think the way they think. Now you come along with an alternative view, taking the hardest science, and you're showing the evidence beyond a doubt that this is a mitochondrial metabolic disease, which would then, which would then offer a whole new different kind of a strategy for management, and yet no one's doing this. So then you have to say to yourself, well, what's going on here? Either, either my, uh, our view of cancer as a metabolic disease is fundamentally flawed in some way, then uh, please let us know. If you feel that it is fundamentally flawed, please tell me how it is flawed. Where did Warburg go wrong? Where did we go wrong in reinterpreting Warburg's findings with the, with the most solid information that we have? Then when we look at the alternative view, now we're finding that we used to have these driver mutations. Oh, you got to have a driver mutation. Well, now with new uh, sequencing analysis, we're finding these so-called devastating cancer driver mutations expressed in normal cells that never become cancer, right? Now we find cancer cells that have no mutations. So as you begin to see all the inconsistencies in the somatic mutation theory, you have to say to yourself, why are we continuing to do research on a failed concept of what cancer is? That's people in the street need to have an answer to that. They shouldn't sit around because they are going to be the recipients of these toxic approaches that are being used every day in every major medical center throughout the world, which is based on a false understanding of what the nature of the disease is. So this should be, a, this should be an outrage on the part of every person who either has cancer or fears that he's going to get cancer because this is uh, the situation. You know, and they say, well, if, we, if it were so right, we would be doing it. Who? Who's going to do it? I have the literature. I've been showing people. This is, here, here it is. What, what part do you not believe? <laughs> so, well, it can't be that. You know, we can't. It's always some peripheral explanation. It's not telling me exactly the process and the scientific, scientific evidence that's flawed. You know, this is, there's a thousand papers showing that cancer cells cannot live without glutamine. Right. This is there's all kinds of evidence showing that glutamine is a major fuel for cancer. There's a thousands and thousands of articles saying glucose is a major fuel for cancer. Right. Thousands of articles. So what are we going to say? All oh, these articles are wrong and cancer doesn't rely on if you without energy, nothing grows. I said this. You can't grow without energy. So you want to stop abnormal proliferation. You pull the plug on the energy. And the tumor cells can't burn ketones. So we transition the whole body over to ketones, which all normal cells can burn as energy. And then once we do that, we target glucose and glutamine, and the normal cells are protected and the tumor cells are eliminated or, or significantly reduced in growth. Now, what is the problem? How come nobody can understand this? It's not that they don't understand. They understand. But it's a very big challenge to say, we have been wrong on this whole cancer thing. And we need to change. So you think Novartis is going to do this? You think all these big pharmaceutical companies are going to jump in to do this? No. But the future is this. The future is metabolic therapy for cancer. You, you either you know, come on board or get out of the way. It's coming. People want it. Scientists are beginning to understand it. And there's more. And we're starting a global society of metabolic therapy where scientists and physicians all want to participate in this major effort. So it's happening. It's going to happen. It's either going to happen slowly or more rapidly. But in my view, I feel tra it's a tragedy that we have to sacrifice the health and well-being of these millions of people worldwide to persist in a, in a false understanding of the disease because of established dogmatic view. That's, that's the situation. It's unfortunate. Yeah. I think you see it in 
most fields, don't you, that there's a that there's a, an orthodoxy. And I mean, it touches me because uh, I had testicular cancer about mm, 15 years ago. And I would say, I always say to people that if you're going to get cancer, that's the one to get. Um, because if you catch it at stage one, then you've got like a 96%. Oh, it's, in fact, it's more than that. If you catch it at stage one, the 4% of people who die from it are, tend to be like Lance Armstrong, who had stage four. And um, they told me that uh, it was kind of a strange coincidence that in the 60s, the incidence of uh, testicular cancer went through the roof. It had been a very rare one before, but they also found cisplatin um, a chemotherapy, which uh, it happens to respond really well to. And obviously, if you catch it early, then it's really uh, easy to um, perform surgery on. Uh, which isn't like um, certain other cancers. Yes. Um, and, you know, so I, I've been following all this very carefully because I wouldn't want anyone to go through that and I wouldn't want to go through it again myself. And, um, you know, I said to, you know, there's that, uh, there's that old saying that uh, science progresses one professor death at a time. And I said that to <clears throat> Jim Johnson, Professor Jim Johnson, who just brought out a, a great paper on insulin and pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, in mice, um, and there's a very there's a very clear role for uh, lot you know too much insulin um, being uh, circumstantially implicated in uh, the development of pancreatic cancer. And he said, "Well, can we not just say one professor retirement at a time?" Um, yeah. So okay, sure, but um, that's the way it goes, isn't it? And yeah, I mean, uh, I mean well, it, it goes. That's what they've always said, you know. Um, the field of science but you know I, I look at it like we have we have all the evidence not all the evidence but we certainly have a very strong strong case but you know why why should we have to wait for all of these uh, individuals at the top medical schools uh, to die off uh, or retire uh, before um, do, well, I'm, I'm thinking about the poor people that are being treated right now and and are being are suffering and dying uh, from all these toxic treatments um, for the lack of, uh, of the field to, uh, to recognize that this is not what they think it is. So it's not an insignificant thing that, we're, that all these poor people are being, are, are being sacrificed uh, for a false understanding uh, of what the nature of the disease is. And, um, but I, I want to be honest with you, it's, it's not as simple as, as I might seem to make it because because um, many, many of the folks that you need to help have help you are untrained. Um, many, many patients themselves don't know what to do. Um, so it, we can't simply turn them away from standards of care into a field where the guidelines have not yet been firmly established. This is why we are forming this global society where we can uh, interact as a as a as a group of scientists and physicians to share and compare and contrast our observations and what we think would work best under certain circumstances and then begin to formulate a clear plan a protocol if you will so that we can uh, then help these physicians so they know so what we do here at Boston College is we ferret out a lot of these strategies in preclinical systems so that we have evidence that something will work or something will not work and and the strategy that we take and then we immediately tell our friends in the clinics this is what we find so they have some level uh, less anxiety in approaching a problem if they know uh, we have preclinical evidence to say that this could be working. It's not gonna harm your patient. It's in all likelihood gonna have a therapeutic benefit. So that gives them less anxiety saying, well, I, I've never done this before. I don't know what to expect. I don't know what was gonna happen. And I don't wanna lose my license for practicing medicine. And that's another thing. You know, These poor physicians, they fear changing anything that's not recommended by the authorities. And I had one physician tell me that you know, he got a spectacular result on an advanced breast cancer person using metabolic therapy that was un, unanticipated using any kind of standard therapy. And when he presented it to the uh, oncology board, uh, they, almost, they were very angry uh, uh, about what he had done. 
um, not, not the fact that the results were so spectacular, but by the fact that he chose a, a therapeutic path that was not sanctioned uh, by the establishment. In other words, it was okay for a cancer patient to die by a recognized certified therapy than to live by an uncertified therapy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So these are the tra this is the, the the obstacles that you have to you have to recognize. So why why would you institute that? This is the dogmatic view. This is the standard of care. This is what we do. We have a, a, a regimen of radiation, a chemo, and we do it this way. And it's almost like one shoe fits all for the majority of people. And then uh, and then you're on your own, right? You're going to hope that that this goes away. If it comes back, we have another. And by that time, the poor patient is so beat up. Most of the time, they die from the from the therapies rather than the disease itself. So, so, you know, we have a, I published a press pulse with my physician colleagues and Dom D'Agostino, a strategy whereby we can slowly degrade cancer while maintaining the health and vitality of the rest of the body. But you need trained physicians. You need, you need people that are actually understand the biochemistry, not so deep like we do, but at least the, the general uh, guidelines. And, and um, also maintaining all the electrolytes and blood markers and all the things that you have to do to know that that patient is in fact improving in general overall general health. There should be no reason for diarrhea, hair loss, vomiting, or joint pain, gum, gum disease, all this. There should be no reason for this. This is, this is evidence that people are treating a disease about which they have no knowledge. So, um, and, and this is what you know, gets, us all, gets us all excited. But uh, metabolic therapy for cancer requires some participation on the part of the patient. This is like Verda Health for diabetes. You, you, the, diab the person with diabetes must participate in an active management of his or her disease. So it's not just completely left up to the, to the, to the medical staff. That person has to follow and remain compliant if they would like to cure their type 2 diabetes. It's the same thing for cancer, except we use a Verda Health platform, but at the same time, we need drugs that actually specifically target the glutamine. And they, Verta Health and targeting glucose only hits the glucose part of the problem, doesn't hit the glutamine part of the problem. So, but the, but the overlap is very significant in the two different strategies, one for managing type two and the other for managing cancer. And most, if not all cancers will respond because they all have the same metabolic problem. So we can forget about the genes. We don't have to worry about those things. They're all gonna, be, the cells are gonna die. So if the cells die, you don't have to worry about any of this other stuff. So, um, so again, this is uh, it's a it's a very it's going to be a very tumultuous um, process, but I think it's the, the the end result will be cancer patients will benefit significantly from this paradigmic change in the way we treat the disease. Well, I certainly hope so. Um, one of the novel therapies mentioned in Tripping Over the Truth is three bromopyruvate or three BP which um, in the, uh, the case report in the book uh, was administered to a Dutch teenager who had end-stage liver cancer. And um, when it was applied, his cancer went away. And unfortunately, he died later when his body was unable to cope with an infection, if I remember correctly. Um, and you touched on it that it's difficult to test these theories because just like the, the um, breast cancer oncologist found because there is a standard of care procedure which once established must be followed in order to be ethically treating the patient. But this prevents you in some ways from experimenting with other therapies uh, uh, other than when the patient has no other options and it's a last throw of the dice and they're so ill that they're likely to die from um, the, the cancer yeah. or the fallout from the conventional therapies anyway. Um, what's the position of that research on 3BP and do you think there's a way around the problem of getting these novel therapies to patients earlier than end stage? Yeah. Well, the three bromopyruvate is an interesting example. I mean, it's very powerful in cells and culture. It kills almost every kind of a tumor cell. Um, the issue with 3BP is that it has a very short half-life in vivo uh, when you give it. So, and it also has some uh, off-target toxic effects. Um, so you always have to recognize that. And on the, other, on the other hand, it's also just targeting the glucose pathway, uh, the glycolytic uh, pathway. It's not, it's not targeting the glutaminolysis pathway. So again, it's only part of the puzzle. It's only one, it's only one strategy. 
uh, to do that. Again, most people don't realize that it's like the barn with two doors. You know, you close the front door and the horse runs out the back door and you close the back door and he runs out the front door. The, the only way you're going to get it is you have to close both doors. And, and, and in a cancer case, you close both doors and then you, and then you just eliminate the barn. So, um, and they're all trapped in there because they can't, they can't escape the metabolic uh, starvation that we, we put them up again. So a lot of, and I've seen so many papers are published, even the Mukherjee Cantley paper, uh, where they were targeting PI3K, the kinase, which is part of the glycolytic pathway, uh, using ketogenic diet and a drug that targets the glycolysis pathway. But again, they didn't do anything about the glutamine issue. So, so our strategy, which we just published, is you're not going to be successful in, in getting the best management unless you target both pathways simultaneously. And that then blocks all of the capabilities of these tumor cells to resist or morph into something else. So you, you've, got to, you've got to get both pathways and you have to hit them simultaneously. But it's not that simple because glutamine targeting is has to be done very strategically you must understand the biology and biochemistry of glutamine it's the most abundant amino acid in our bodies it's involved with the urea cycle the immune system heal, wound healing uh, all of these very very important aspects so if you're targeting glutamine you have to make sure that you don't do too aggressive because you could harm the person so you're back in the so again it's understanding the biology and the biochemistry of the approaches that you're using. So again, this requires education. So you need to know, that's why we do press pulse. Uh, the press is the ketogenic metabolic therapy, which brings the body, reduces blood sugar, and elevates ketones. So we're pulling, a, pulling away one of the fuels and transferring to another fuel. And then we give small doses of these glutamine inhibitors. Um, over time, doses, timing, and scheduling are crucial. Because if you're too aggressive, you, you impair your own immune system. Because if you kill tumor cells in your body, we have immune systems that go around and pick up the dead cells and get rid of the dead cells. This is a turnover. you know. So the very cells that pick up the dead cells, part of our immune system, need that glutamine. So if you're too aggressive, you kill the tumor cells, but at the same time, you paralyze the cells that pick up the corpses. And then you get infections, you have all these other problems. So you need to know how to work the, the drugs and metabolic therapies off each other. And this is where the cutting edge of the field is right now. And you know, people, people say, well, you know, this is really important and great, but it's not sexy because you're not targeting. Who gives a shit? We're, we're, we're trying to keep these people alive and we're trying to do it so they don't have hair loss and all these other things. And it may not be so sexy, but in the long run, the bottom line is that guy is going to live a hell of a lot longer and be a hell of a lot healthier. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a trial kind of an, an er, a trial and error kind of approach. We, we need to know how to strategically apply these processes so that we can keep people alive. So we want to ferret all that out in the preclinical system first. And then once we know that, then we move forward into the clinics. And I have to be honest with you, uh, the results in humans far surpass anything we have ever seen in these uh, mouse models and, and, and preclinical model systems that we use. So humans are ideally suited for these kinds of strategies. And we get the results we get in humans are much better. I, I've never seen some of the success in my preclinical systems that we see in humans. So clearly, we're on the right path. Uh, we don't have all of the, the, the details yet fully, fully uh, uh, understood or, or controlled uh, we understand the problems, but we haven't controlled for some of the variables. And uh, people think, well, this is not really sexy. I'd rather do some really nice gene knockout study and this kind of stuff. That's nonsense. I mean, that's great for basic research, but it's not going to help the person in the clinic. We got to get this stuff onto these poor people in the clinic and have them live longer and healthier. That's, that's, that, that's the thing. We can do it. We just have to train a number of people and we have to you know, work out a few of the details. Great. Um, I mean, it's clear that in an ideal world, you would prevent cancer rather than have to treat it. And there's obviously environmental cancer causes that are well established, like smoking and certain viruses. Um, what do you think are other main drivers? And have you, are you familiar with um, some of the work around uh, excessive amounts of omega-6 fats, particularly linoleic acid, um, 
as a uh, a driver of cancer or any others? Any any you can't get cancer without damage to the mitochondria. That's the origin of cancer. So anything that will damage mitochondria puts you at risk for the path of cancer, right? And mitochondria is the the little dynamo, the little uh, engine that um, produces energy, right, inside your cells. Yes. yes. So that's the origin of cancer. Anything that will cause chronic, chronic damage to respiratory function within a cell of a particular origin. So, for example, let me give you an example. Breast cancer. All right. So person gets breast. How do they get that breast cancer? Where did that woman get that breast cancer from? Well, in one case could have been an occluded milk duct, which led to an inflammatory site in a part of her breast. Inflammation is known to damage respiration. And that chronic milk duct occlusion led to a chronic inflammatory locus inside of uh, of, of her tissue that led to the damage of respiration in one of the cells around that occluded milk duct, thereby putting that cell in phase two, which is the upregulation of a fermentation metabolism leading to dysregulated cell growth and the formation of a tumor, okay? Another woman may get breast cancer for no apparent reason, but she was exposed to certain kinds of chemical carcinogens in her background. And one of those carcinogens got into a particular cell in her breast that damaged the respiration, which we know, leading to the same cascading event. Another person may have had a viral infection that, that affected some cells in the breast or another part of the, another organ that put, on, put her at risk for cancer. Then there's the BRCA1. Well, um, she has the BRCA1 gene, therefore her risk for cancer is going to be significantly higher than the general population. What does BRCA1 do? The product of BRCA1 is found in the mitochondria. So the mitochondria become damaged. BRCA1 is a risk factor. It's, it's a secondary. Occluded milk duct, carcinogen, viral infection, inflammation, BRCA1, all of these are considered secondary risk factors. Not primary, they're secondary. They're secondary causes. The primary origin of the disease is damage to the respiration. So how do we prevent cancer? All right. So how would you reduce inflammation in your body? Diet and exercise. How would you reduce exposure to chemicals in the, in the environment? Well, you have to, first of all, recognize that you might be in an environment where there's a lot of chemicals, and you try to avoid that environment. If you're smoking a lot, how would you reduce the, the, the effects of smoke? You stop smoking. You try to reduce the risk factors that you know about. Now, if you have the BRCA1 mutation, then you know that that is going to damage respiration. You're going to have to do therapeutic fasting or low uh, ketogenic diets that will significantly reduce the probability of the BRCA gene damaging the respiration. So there's a lot of things that you can do once you understand what the players are. So cancer is caused by viral infections. We know hepatitis C, uh, papillomaviruses, they all damage respiration, leading to, to a transition from oxfos to fermentation, the two-step process. Viruses damage mitochondria, forcing the cells to ferment, and you get cancer from viruses, okay? Certain BRCA1 genes, P P53, damages mitochondria, puts you at risk. This is the leaf Raumeni inherited syndrome. Chemical carcinogens, chronic inflammation. There's a significant increase of uh, cancer in the obese people. What does obesity do? If you look at C-reactive protein, which is a marker for inflammation, it's higher in many obese people than in non-obese people. C-reactive protein is a marker for systemic inflammation. That's going to put some population of cells in your body, body at risk for developing cancer. So reduce obesity. You're going to reduce risk for cancer because you're going to reduce systemic inflammation. You can go back and you can go through every single uh, view, view of cancer, and you'll, all, and you'll find that you can prevent cancer by avoiding risk factors. Now, we live in a technological age. It's almost impossible to avoid all of the risk factors in our environment. And therefore, that's why, well, I've got cancer, what am I gonna do about it now? Okay, now you can use a metabolic therapy to uh, try to, try to uh, reduce the, 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 kill the cancer cells and keep your body healthy. But let's be honest, most people, they live a good lifestyle. They're exposed to, they're, they're just daily living every day puts you at risk for cancer in an industrialized society. All right, what do you want to do? Go back and live in a cave like you did 50,000 years ago? You know, killing and eating animals and, and li living on, on whatever a, a, a vegetable or nut or berry you could find? I mean, nobody's going to do that. 
you know, so, so you got to deal with the understanding of the problem. There's two, you, you understand how to prevent cancer, at least do things that will reduce your risk. And if you are unfortunate to get cancer, at least you have a, a, a clear plan on how to manage the disease uh, without the horrific toxicity and expense that is currently being uh, uh, applied to the majority of people who have cancer in the world today. Okay. So, you know, we can replace radiation with hyperbaric oxygen for most of these cancers, which is a much less uh, toxic way to create oxidative stress. Only after you're in therapeutic ketosis and use certain other kinds of drugs that make the hyperbaric oxygen work better. So there are so many new ways. It's unbelievable the new ways that we're going to have to manage cancer without toxicity. But we can't do that in the current, in the current, strat in the current situation that we have right now. I guess my last question then would be, what should people do now? You know, you're saying that the future is metabolic therapy, and I, uh, I share your hope there. But if someone has cancer at the moment, and they might be in the UK, they might be in Germany, they might be in America, is there anything they can do to access these kinds of therapies if they wanted to? Well, that's a, that's a problem. Um, and that's, the, that's one of the great, great problems. So you hear me talk, you hear all the stuff, it sounds wonderful, it sounds great, supported by hard science. Then you go down, you have the lump or something, and you, you go down, you get diagnosed with cancer, um, and we're gonna give you radiation and chemo. Um, what about metabolic? Well, we don't do that. Uh, can I have it? Uh, no one here is trained. So we, we have this very, very uh, uncomfortable, strange situation. We have a therapy that could potentially work for millions of people, and the very, the very people that are supposed to do it don't know anything about it. And, and they've been trained to do certain things. And now you're telling me that they shouldn't do what they've been trained to do and re immediately adapt to a different kind of a, of a situation. So I, I think the group in Turkey, uh, Istanbul, uh, which, is, which have embraced this concept probably earlier than most in a, in a more concerted way are getting the results that are really quite remarkable. They, they call it metabolically... Uh, uh, supported chemotherapy. So they're giving very low doses of the same kinds of chemo, but they're using um, ketogenic diets, hyperbaric oxygen, hyper, uh, hyperthermia. Uh, they're using a variety of other um, supplements and drugs and things that work synergistically to target the tumor cells. And they're getting some, they, use, they do it mostly on stage four cancers of the lung, the ovary, the gastric cancers, pancreatic cancer, and they're getting very, very good, much, much longer survivals and quality of life improvement than almost any other group on the planet. So um, clearly, uh, but again, it's like a hybrid system. You know, it's using some standard of care, but it's also moving into the metabolic approach. I think in time, it's going to be all metabolic approach, and we're going to try to eliminate all the toxic, toxic things. And this is the way most new paradigms work. You know, when you went from sailing ships to, uh, you know, to diesel, you, you go through a, a ship that has both sails and steam and mm -hmm. then sails and diesel, and eventually you don't have anybody, any major ships that have sails anymore. So, and I, and I think that's the way it, it might progress. Um, but, you know, as I said, it's sad because you see so many of these people suffering and being exposed to all these toxic things. And, and many of the people are dying. We don't know how many people die from the cancer or die from the toxic treatments they're given for the cancer. It's a hard number to come by because, you know, oh, he died of pancreatic cancer but after being horrifically treated with so much toxicity. Um, because some of these people die quick. Um, you know, you go in for cancer. There's no reason why anybody should have to die quickly from, can from, being diag from diagnosis to death in two or three weeks. This is, this is crazy. But this is what happens in some of these immunotherapies. I mean, no, we know, you know, um, some very influent people who have a lot of money, um, very wealthy people go to the top medical schools to get these newest treatments. And some of these guys die real quick, uh, despite the fact that they're multimillionaires. So as I said, I think the poor are going to benefit most from metabolic therapy because they can't afford all this other stuff. Mm. And this is something that they, that they could embrace and live longer and then uh, and the people say, well, how come all these poor people are living so long and doing pretty good? They don't lose their hair and everything. They're doing metabolic therapy. Oh, yeah, what's that? You know, maybe I should do that, right? And also dogs. Dogs are riddled with cancer. 
and um, and they're doing the dogs that are on keto and metabolic therapies are doing really really well. <laughs> so um, people are going to say, "How come my pet's living with cancer and I'm dying?" <laughs> you know. So uh, you know, it's 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 going to be coming at you from several different angles. It's going to be a, a tidal wave of of change because people want to live. <laughs> Bottom line is, I want to live and I don't want to be poisoned and irradiated and make myself my life miserable. Uh, and just so I can, you know, I want you to survive, but I don't want you to be so miserable. You know, I, I, I think that's the, uh, is there anything wrong with that? It's based on hard sciences. Shouldn't we all embrace something like this? So, um, and then you go and you say, well, all the experts say it can't work. Well, based on what? Let me, tell me exactly what's wrong with this whole concept. I want to hear your, well, it just can't. So then they start attacking for different reasons, not the core problem. They attack for, or, or they might dis, disagree, no clinical trials. If it were so good, we'd have a clinical trial. Well, who runs the clinical trials? The top pharmaceutical companies. Do they, they have an interest in doing this? No, not yet anyway. So there's your answer. You can answer every one of these questions with a logical comeback, but it's just, you know, it's, it's just, unfortunately, it's just the way it is right now. And we're doing everything we possibly can. And then try to get money to do research. Oh, that's the hardest part in the world. It's very hard to get money to do metabolic therapy when you're trying to develop a therapy that actually works in the clinic. But you can get millions of dollars to study immunotherapies, you know, these kinds of things, or some esoteric gene expression profile. You know, that they get a lot of money in cancer research. All this money for cancer research, we're all saying, where's all this money going? And I, and I, and I also say, you know, when people raise money for their charities, you know, for, um, for whatever, you should know where the money goes if you're raising the money. So, you know, because... I find now that most raising money for, for cancer research has become an end in itself. Just how much money can I raise for cancer research? Where does the money go? So yeah. people should ask that. You know, these are things people need to start asking. And there's a, there's a kind of disturbing trend in the UK towards raising money for cancer research by doing bakery sales where people make cakes and sell them at their work or wherever yeah. and it's they're full of sugar and flour and, and vegetable oils and they're not aware of this like dreadful irony that i know that they're funneling carcinogens in yeah i know but as long as they don't give it to the cancer patient the cakes to the cancer <laughs> let them eat the cakes the, the if they sell the cake to support metabolic therapy that's okay <laughs> <laughs> you see what i'm saying but but uh, but you're absolutely right about that, you know. And the other thing too is in the hospitals when the kids come out of their toxic treatments, they give them cakes and ice cream. Mm. Uh, that's really horrific, because we all know that uh, cancer cells are sucking down that glucose like there's no tomorrow. So mm. uh, you want to try to avoid glucose in the, in the in the diet as much as possible, sugar and all these kinds of things. And yet that's completely unrecognized. We have all this hard science to show. We did experiments on mice where we showed. If you, if the, the faster the tumor, the higher the blood sugar, the faster the tumor grew, and the lower the blood sugar, the slower the tumor grew. Over and over again, we did this dozens and dozens of times. And then people started reporting the same thing in the human literature. When you have a lot of blood sugar, the, the, patients, the, the patients die very much faster than if you have low blood sugar. What does that mean? It become completely. So why are we giving cancer patients cakes and ice cream? Hmm. It, 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 makes, it makes no sense in light of all the evidence that we have. So there's this huge disconnect between what we know and what's actually being done. So um, people need to be educated. I mean, everybody in every uh, oncology ward throughout the world know, should know glucose is harmful to my patient. We got to keep the, and yet they deliver some of the chemo drugs in high sugar. Hmm. So, um, and then they give them steroids, which increase blood sugar and makes their appetite increase. I mean, everything you're doing here is like upside down. You shouldn't be doing any of this stuff. Yet they do it. So this is how many things have to change. Oh God, you're talking about all a bunch of things. But as long as you're aware of it, at least you can make you know make people other people aware of this. Yes, and I'm hopeful, like you are, that it will um, at least be given a shot. I mean, what is there to lose? That's the thing. And um, I think the more the message gets out there, the more people will realize that. I just hope it ha happens sooner rather than later. Yeah, well, with some cancers like glioblastoma, you know, it's almost like a death sentence. And we published a big paper just recently showing how the standard of care actually accelerates the demise of the patients. It's unquestionable. 
So the first thing you do when you have this kind of a cancer, and many stage four cancers identified for the first time, is immediately shrink down those tumors with metabolic therapy. Immediately put that patient at, 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 in the advantage rather than the disadvantage. And that has to, so it's an upfront. You don't treat me, patients with metabolic therapy after all this toxic stuff failed. No, no. You come at that tumor right up front. Now, if metabolic therapy is not able to eradicate the tumor completely or bring it into a dormant state, then you might remotely consider some of these other procedures. But doing that first, putting these poor people at risk for demise, that makes no sense to me. And we have the hard evidence to support. I published a paper on that in neurochemical research, uh, you know, a, a legitimate publication in the neurochemical field. So clearly, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be done. Yeah, upfront metabolic therapy. That's the first thing people should be doing for cancer. Well, I really appreciate you um, talking about it. Um, where can people uh, find you? And um, what was the name of that Turkish clinic? Well, the Turkish clinic is in Istanbul. Uh, Dr. Um, Abdel Slocum is one of the authors that have published with us and with by, and with others at the clinic, and they're getting more, they're getting overwhelmed uh, with patients now, and um, because the word is out that they have very good success rate for many of these advanced cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, on on my website, just into PubMed. Pub, publication medicine. You can look up all the papers that we've published, and I've co-authored a lot of these papers with others. We have a lot of YouTube videos, and then people make donations to our research through Travis Christofferson's foundation, uh, who wrote to Tripping Over the Truth, set up a, a foundation for metabolic therapy. So 100% of that money goes to our research. So there's no middleman in this whole thing. So that's another nice thing uh, about this. So. So people make, make contributions. Uh, they read about this. Miriam Kalamian wrote a beautiful book on keto for cancer. She has a direct experience. She works with cancer patients all the time. Keto for cancer. She does it over the internet uh, service to help people and physicians uh, you know, maneuver their way through this metabolic approaches. So it's a growing field. Um, it's coming together, but, I, but it's still not uh, uh, the mainstream. You know, it, but it will be the mainstream. It's just that we're we're in the very earliest stages of this new transformation. So funding, uh, resources, educational materials, people need to know this. And and families who decide to do this, it has to be a family uh, exercise right now. We can't allow the patient to manu- to do this alone. And any any family with in a disagreement about metabolic therapy. Oftentimes, this then creates tremendous problems. If you have one member of the family saying that you shouldn't do this and another member saying something different, everybody has to be on board with their uh, health uh, team. Everybody has to know what's going on, and they all work together as a family unit, as a team unit. Otherwise, if there, it, doesn't, it doesn't work because it requires a lot of discipline on the part of the patient. And if they don't get the encouragement they need, it doesn't work as well. So there's a lot of things that have to have to come together, and we're working all that out. All that's being worked out. That's good. I mean, you pick up the point there about needing the team there, and I think that's been shown in diet studies before, where the randomized controlled trials, which is what everyone always asks for in terms of the gold standard of evidence. But if you randomize people onto different diets that they don't want to be on, then what yeah. are your chances of um, of success? And if you randomize patients onto treatments that they think are not going to work, then what's the chance that their them and their family are going to rally around it? That's 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 completely correct. They have to look at the data and say, here's what the standard of care looks like, and you have a possibility because here's Pablo Kelly, who rejected completely the standard of care with a glioblastoma documented, and now he's alive five years later, still alive. I mean, and his wife had a baby. You know, most people rarely live five years. And he did it without radiation and chemo. What does that mean? Well, he's a fluke. Uh, what about Andrew Scarborough? Uh, what about Allison Gann? What about all these other people that are doing the same thing? Oh, well, they're all flukes. Well, how many flukes do you need? Hmm. You know, well, let me tell you something. We have hard data to say that if you do standard of care, your probability of living two years is like 5%. So we have that's hard data. That's not a fluke. <laughs> So people have to look at the alternatives and what they're up against, you know, what their situation is. I mean, if I had a glioblastoma 
myself, if I were diagnosed with a glioma, there's no way in hell I would ever have radiation and chemo to fight it. No way in hell would I ever do radiation. I would do what Pablo Kelly did. I'd shrink it down after a couple of years. And then if it looked like it's operational, I would probably have it surgically debulked, but I would never expose myself to radiation and chemo for a glioblastoma. I'd fight it tooth and nail using metabolic therapy. Would I survive? I don't know. But if I could get longer than the, than the predicted outcome, that's better than the, the chances that they would give me anywhere else. And I think everybody has to have that, that knowledge base and, and come to their own. It's an individual decision in consultation with the family and the oncologist. So it all has to, they all have to work together. Then I think things are really going to change. And double-blind crossover on metabolic therapy is going to be very hard. Mm-hmm. Right? Think about it. You know, you're, you're, you're eating no carbohydrates in your diet. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, you're eating a lot of fat, no carb, right? And you're getting certain kinds of drugs. And it's, it's just go by the, the, what we call the historic controls. All right. History Y tells me I should be dead in, in, in 24 months. In other words, the probability of living beyond 24 or 30 months is minimal. So I'm here, I'm 36 months. Hey, let's party. Let's have another, let's, let's have another uh, teaspoon of lard. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So anyway, it's, it's going to be a challenge. We're, we're trying to work out the, you know, a lot of things here. But yeah, I have, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Well, I'm really glad that the message is getting out more and more and um, more power to you. I appreciate your time and your work. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider, where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor-bred pork, and a selection of paleo and low-carb products delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Use the code CANTEEN15, that's C-A-N-T-E-E-N-1-5, to get 15% off your first order. Thanks, and see you next time.